0: Welcome to the Life Self Mastery podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery. I'm excited to have Richard Bronson, who is the founder of 70 Million Jobs, which has served as director of Defy Ventures, uh, which is an organization dedicated to providing income incarcerated men and women, second chances upon release. Before that, he was the co-founder of Popo- popular nostalgia website, doyourmember.com. His career began on Wall Street, where he managed money at Lehman Brothers and Turns. He eventually went on to found Biltmore Securities, uh, a registered broker-dealer based in South Florida, Richard group uh, built more to nearly 500 employees, generating $100 million in annual revenue. Welcome to the show, Richard.
1: Hi, Rohit. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Awesome. So, you know, um, you, you've had a long journey. Um, I want to know how did you get your first job and how did you, uh, why did you want to build 70 million jobs?
1: How did I get my first job and why do I want to build 70 million jobs? Well, that's a difference of about 40 years. So, to address your first question, I went to college uh, to study journalism, and I always thought I would be a writer. So, out of college, I, um, in fact, worked in that field at a very low level, and I quickly realized that if I wanted to make a lot of money, it was not going to be as a writer. Um, My family uh, had an import business. Um, and it meant working with and for my father. Um, so I did that for several years, but like most relationships between sons and fathers, at times it was stressful, and we drove each other a little crazy. Um, I, I left that. Um, I had a lot of friends who were, and I knew a lot of people who were working on Wall Street. I'm from New York, and that's where I was living at the time, and I had lots of people I knew were, making a great deal of money on Wall Street. This is during the 80s. And um, I uh, was able to get a job initially working at a large investment banking firm. Uh, I worked at a couple of different investment banking firms, and I discovered I was very good at the work. And it suited me personality-wise. But at a certain point, I thought, you know, maybe there would be something else I'd be like to do. But before I left the industry completely, I had a friend who was working at the infamous firm that was depicted in the Wolf of Wall Street, um, a, a small brokerage firm where I had heard about young men who were had relatively little education uh, were making a ridiculous amount of money. So right. I uh, said, I have to check this out because you know, with my background, I could probably do very well there. So I um, decided to uh, um, take advantage of the opportunity to work there. And in short order, I too was making a great deal of money there. And eventually I became a partner in the firm. And I will tell you that that firm was every bit as crazy and, and fun. As it was depicted on um, the the film by Martin Scorsese, um, we took a lot of drugs, we spent a lot of money, we acted in a very embarrassing fashion in retrospect. But we never laughed so hard. Ho- I never laughed so hard in my life. Uh, I eventually left there to start my own firm that was very much based upon and modeled upon that firm. Uh, that was done in Florida, and we had a stunning amount of very quick success. Um, we grew the company, as you mentioned. We ended up with about 500 employees within a couple of years, and we were doing uh, about $100,000 in annual revenue. Uh, unfortunately, like the, in the film, we were breaking some laws. Mm-hmm. And while I would love to say that, you know, we were innocent or I was innocent, but we didn't know what we were doing. I, had, I knew exactly what I was doing. I knew I was breaking the law. I made a decision to do it because I was stupid and greedy and impatient. And, um, and I paid the price because I was convicted of securities fraud. And rightfully, I was sentenced to a two-year prison sentence. Um, It would have been a lot longer sentence had I not already paid everybody back every penny that we illegitimately were able to generate. Um, We had a partner and we both felt that not only was it the right thing to do, but we knew we were going to get in trouble one day and it was probably would be in our interest to pay people back. So we did that. And in fact, it made for a lighter sentence than it would have been. Um, so I went away to prison and, and I was penniless because prior to going to prison, I gave away all the money I had and I had substantial assets, but I gave it away to all the different charities because I was so disgusted with myself and, and ashamed. And I felt like, you know, this is what money did to me. So I, you know, thought, it was a very dark time, needless to say. So I gave everything away. And when I came out of prison, I was completely penniless and homeless, um, which was quite uh, a, a, a huge difference between my life before, which involved private jets and Ferraris and a very you know luxurious, opulent lifestyle. Uh, when I got out of prison, Um, at least, um, I'm very happy to say I learned about a lot about humility. It's impossible not to learn about humility when, you know, you're scrubbing the toilets for a hundred people. Um, so I came out of prison penniless, but a changed person. And it took me a while, um, though, to figure out what to do with my life. And it was very, very hard. You know, friends that I thought were friends had disappeared and business opportunities completely dried up. Nobody wanted to have anything to do with me, um, which I understand, um, but I was lucky. I eventually, after a few years, found a home working at the, a nonprofit that is in the reentry space, as you mentioned, Defy Ventures. And that was really very, very satisfying work. And um, I was able to do good things You know, that I felt that were karmically uh, in my interest. You know, I studied Buddhism and I'm very, very much concerned about, you know, the implications of my past behavior uh, and what that means for my future and to do whatever I can do to try to settle the balance a little bit, you know. So um, I felt like I was doing that, but I couldn't help but know that despite our best efforts of this well-intentioned nonprofit and many like it, we weren't really accomplishing a lot. Um, unemployment among the formerly incarcerated has never been higher in, this, in the United States. And that's in, a, in an environment where for the rest of the company, unemployment has never been lower. But for this population, it's almost 30%. And, you know, it was clear to me we were sort of losing the war And unemployment for this population generally results in recidivism. You know, people are rearrested if they don't have a job. So I thought there was a better way to do it. I thought if we could do it, you know, utilizing technology, if we could do it on a national level, and if we could do it a lot more aggressively than it had been done before, you know, maybe we could make a big difference. So I left my nonprofit job and I launched... Um, 70 million jobs in New York. And as you mentioned, almost immediately, um, Y Combinator reached out to me. Y Combinator is the preeminent, internationally preeminent, early stage investor and accelerator program that's based in Silicon Valley, Valley, as you know. And that was a great experience. And at the end of it, I was able to raise the funds seed round to begin building my business.
0: Interesting. You know, uh, I love the transparency where you, you talk about uh, what had happened uh, during the brokerage shown that you were running. And, you know, uh, uh, I've done my MBA and then I got into a broking firm myself. And then I, uh, two years after doing this retail broking thing, I, I got tired and got into startups. But, uh, but, but nevertheless, you know, uh, 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 you know what, what would be the learning for for somebody you know is trying to build their own companies and trying to build their careers and what what are the uh, what 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 would the advice would you give to millennials or Gen Zs who who want to grow fast? Uh, you know it, uh, you know there's a lot of pressure in tech company, in tech industries as well in financial industries to to get those sort of Profits or margins. You know, what advice would you give to young people who are around twenty-five years old? We have seen in two thousand eight how the subprime mortgage uh, crisis happened, Uh, and you know these sort of things keep on happening after every you know five or ten years. What what advice would you give to them?
1: Um, I'm I'm frequently asked that question, Um, and I and I do have thoughts on it. Um, You know, certainly that are informed by my personal experiences, lessons I've learned the hard way. Um, My overriding piece of advice is that people should pursue their dreams, their biggest dreams with ardor and passion, and to a certain extent, suspend um, logic, you know, when they're making these decisions. The startup world in general, as you know, is a very, very, very chancy, um, you know, path to take where, you know, very few startups um, actually, you know, are uh, successful. And, You know, if you were to look at the sort of the statistics, and if you judged your behavior, if if you use those to make your, you know, your behavior, you would probably say, I'm not crazy. There's, you know, it's like playing the lottery. Yeah, if it happens, it'll be great, but almost no one ever wins. So, you know, that's why parents are put on this earth to tell their kids not to do crazy stuff like that. But I believe, you know, that there are certain people, and I always felt connected to it, were sort of born with this feeling that exists somewhere within them, that there's something, there's a special reason why they were put on this earth, that there's perhaps greatness in them, that they're capable of it, that there's a destiny that awaits them. And to me, the only difference between people who achieve that destiny and the and the people who don't are the ones that that you know achieve it at a at a particular moment in their life, sort of suspended logic, and said, "I'm going to go for it." You know, the pitch comes in. Oh, I'm going to use a baseball reference. That might not be. Everybody knows what baseball is. I guess, you know, you can try to get on base with a single, which is conservative, or you can try to hit a home run and win the game. You know, I always looked upon trying to hit the home run. You know, my feeling was, well, why not me? You know, I'm as good as anybody else. And if someone else could do it, why can't I do it? You know, which may be bad logic, but nonetheless, it's been the you know, it's been behind all the decisions that I make. So I tell people in general, first of all, to go for it, to take a deep breath and take a chance. Because truly very few things are gonna kill you. And you know, there's rarely that one decision that's gonna, you know, make your life so awful, you know, that there's no going back. Um, so I tell people that if you believe you are that sort of person, you have to just follow that impulse and do it. Um, But I also tell people that there will always be temptation to take shortcuts, temptation to lie, to cheat, to, you know, figure out and game the system. And it may make sense and it may be successful today and it may be successful tomorrow and the next day. But ultimately, it won't be successful. Either you will get caught. And when you're caught, it's never worth it. Never, ever, ever worth it. And it wasn't worth it for me. I used to make 10 and $20 million a year. And I went away to prison for two years. And some people would say, well, that would be worth it. I would do that. But it wasn't worth it for me. Because not a day goes by that I don't feel ashamed And sad of the decisions that I made, and the pain I caused other people, you know, in my family particularly, who loved me, who had to sort of bear that shame as well. Um, So, you know, what I have discovered, and maybe people, a lot of people know this all along, you know, but I discovered that if I approach things honestly, with an open heart, and transparently things always seem to come out right, you know, In often in ways that I didn't expect or anticipate. But in general, my life has improved immeasurably when I just sort of say all the things that I'm afraid to say and share and ashamed of, if I say them, I feel better for it. And other people seem to respond well to it. They appreciate it, you know, and they're more on my side. So in a way, my advice is sort of conflicting. I say, take a chance, go for it, make that, you know, make, try to hit that home run. But when you're doing it, do it honestly and don't cheat and don't, you know, lie about it and try to, you know, do it with a pure good heart. And if you do that, I believe you'll have very, very good outcomes. So those are my two pieces of advice.
0: No, I absolutely agree on this. It's, it's important to go uh, swing for the fences, but it's important to also be honest about it. Uh, you, you know, coming back to seventy million uh, jobs, uh, are there really seventy million people who who are convicted and who can't find jobs, or uh, you know, uh, is it you know they, they got some sort of a police record, and uh, if becomes difficult for them to get a job in US?
1: Well, in the US, um, I don't I, I don't know about other countries. But almost every company now will subject a, a job candidate to a background check, and the background check will you know identify people who have had you know um, legal problems in the past and every company and certainly every large company have parameters hiring parameters in which they will hire certain types of you know people with certain backgrounds, and they won't with other backgrounds. And it doesn't matter if they think the world of the person, if they committed this crime and it appears on the background check, then they're just not gonna hire them, they can't do it. Their legal department won't let them, the CEO won't let them, whatever, it just can't happen. Um, in the United States, we, um, as, a co- as a country, we have 5% of the world's population but 25% of the world's incarcerated population. Um, And our criminal justice system in many ways is worse than in China or North Korea or Russia or Afghanistan or places that you would think would have the worst of the worst. We have the worst of the worst, the way we treat our prison uh, people who are incarcerated, the, the length of their sentences, you know, on and on and on. And in many com- countries, you serve your, your time, you do your sentence, you come out and then, okay, I made a mistake, I'm going to get on with my life, I want to lead a productive life going forward. We don't even let people do that. Um, it's In a sense, people serve a lifetime sentence that they can't get out of. So there are 70 million people in this country, one in three adults which is a spectacular, stunning statistic. One in three adults have a record in the United States and they all have this stigma and they all have a problem getting a job. So we try to help them. We, we can't help everybody. Cause as I mentioned, certain people have backgrounds that almost no company will tolerate. And, you know, we, we approach this as a for-profit thing. So, You know, we choose to get involved with people that we actually think we can help. doesn't matter what we think about them. If no company wants to help them, you know, we that's not a basis for a business, obviously. So we work with people who have this stigma, who we believe we can help get a job. And we work with some of the largest companies in the country. We have about 11 million people with records in our community, and we've been successful in a short time and getting thousands of them jobs. Um, So, you know, we're very, very proud of that, but we're really proud uh, to have the opportunity to work with these folks. Um, For the most part, you know, people with criminal records didn't wake up and say, I want to commit a crime. You know, they were born into a situation where it was all around them and maybe family members were involved and there were few other options where in my, the way I was brought up, and and I don't have any of these excuses at all, uh, I was brought up in an environment that assumed I would go to college and I would lead a productive, successful life. But the people that we work with had, I mean, that that has nothing to do with the world they grew up in you know, it was much, much worse, probably both parents weren't around, maybe neither parents were around. And the only signs of success that they saw, whereas I saw people who were driving Porsches and going to work on Wall Street, they saw people on the street selling drugs who were successful. And that was their role model. And, the, and so far as they, had, they didn't see any other opportunity, that's what they pursued. You know, who knows? They could have been Mark Zuckerberg in a different environment. Absolutely. But, you know, these, these people, after serving their time, they come out. All they want to do is start over their life. Give me a chance. I'm going to work hard. I'll do my best. That's the way most of them are. And it breaks my heart when, you know, I see people who have good intentions, who just have the door slammed in their face over and over and over and over. You know, so the, the opportunity to help them, I feel very, we, me and my team feel very, very fortunate and, and we feel a better, you know, a, for knowing them and seeing how they deal with their adversity.
0: Uh, yes. Yeah, so so Richard, I wanted to understand, are there other competitors in your field as well? I, I think there are a lot of other non-profit uh, co- companies uh, who are trying to solve the same problem. So uh, are there other competitors also, uh, the same startups who are trying to same, uh, solve the same problem?
1: Not to my knowledge, no. Um, you know, I'm often asked, particularly by investors, who my competitors are.
0: Right.
1: And certainly there are many, many large successful companies that operate job boards. The biggest one is Indeed, um, which is an international company. And there are many, many billion dollar staffing companies out there. Um, And, you know, if we had to compete with them directly, that would certainly be a challenge. But we are the only one that focuses entirely on the population we uh, serve, uh, the formerly incarcerated. Now, um, there are many, many hundreds, if not thousands, of nonprofit organizations and community organizations that um, help people who um, are newly released from jail or prison. Um, And they, as part of the support that they provide, they try to help them find jobs. Um, Number one, these organizations, and I at one time was involved with managing one of them, uh, an organization called Defy Ventures, which was a wonderful organization, you know, that uh, I loved working at but these organizations um, typically only work with people who have just been released. And in the United States, there's about 650,000 people that are released from jails or prisons annually, as opposed to the 70 million or so people who were released uh, three years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, who all have the same stigma, the same problems, that anybody else has with having a criminal record. Um, If a a background check is done on them, and almost all companies in the United States do perform background checks, they will get that same red flag that someone who just came out uh, received. So we don't focus on people who have just been released. Um, We are more um, focused on those who have been out for a few years because um, if they've been out for a few years, they've had the opportunity to establish that they're serious about their reentry, and if they've avoided getting in trouble, that really makes them exceptional. And those are the people that we feel, um, you know, that we that that we can sort of pin our business's future on, making bets on them. Um, Nonprofits are generally also um, local in nature. And because they're local, they typically work with local employers. Um, As opposed to our approach, we have a national footprint. So we generally are working with large national employers who, um, you know, of Walmart, for example, now we don't work with them, but Walmart has 5,000 stores in the United States, and they're interested in hiring solutions across the United States, not just in one store. So my goal and why I left the nonprofit world is I don't want to be operating locally with a small number of available positions. I want to operate nationally. And I want companies that can give us thousands, 10,000 jobs, because to me, that's how we really create the greatest amount of impact and also how I build a big successful business.
0: That no, absolutely makes sense. You know, if you can scale it uh, nationally, even internationally, that's uh, that's where the big money is. And um, I wanted to understand what are the your customer acquisition channels. You know, how did you uh, how are you getting people on board uh, for uh, for for both of your products, which is like the job board and the staffing. Uh, how how are you making sure that you know uh, the right number of customers are being uh, are, are being seen on on your portal.
1: When you say our customers we since we have a two sided marketplace, we really have two customers okay. we have job seekers on one side and we have uh in uh, we have employers on the other side who have the jobs so you know as I think I've mentioned, we have millions of job seekers already in our community, and okay. we get that we acquire them mostly because um, all of these organizations around the country send their people to us, or they send people to us who went through their program five years ago, you know, uh, because they know that there's a very good chance that the, the, the individual is unemployed or underemployed, you know, um, there's a high likelihood of that too. But I, th- I think you were really asking from the employer side or the demand side, how do we do it? Right. And we do it a number of different ways. Um, we do outbound marketing of a variety of methods. We do ongoing email campaigns or drip campaigns, where we send a series of targeted emails. We send um, messages to voicemail. Uh, we follow up with phone calls. Um, so that's so that's one channel. Um, we advertise uh, on Facebook and we advertise on LinkedIn, and we're going to be doing advertising on Google with AdWords. Um, so that's another um, channel. Um, we, of course, do SEO to drive inbound um, lead generation. Um, and we do other lead gen approaches. Uh, we do content marketing, we do a lot of social media stuff. Um, and we I do a lot of public speaking um, at right. events, uh, at conferences, and certainly a bunch of podcasts like right. yours today. Right. And uh, so these are just uh, you know a bunch of different things that we do. Um, you know, it's hard for me to know how effective, um, if we're doing a good job, because on the one hand, um, you know, it's hard enough to generate leads enterprise clients are hard to land in general for any startup. Um, but we have the, you know, the additional challenge that, um, there's so much negative bias about hiring the formerly incarcerated. And Great. so much of the bias is not based upon fact, but it's based upon very old, you know, sort of biases and racism and, you know, that are, that are not based in fact or evidence at all. Um, now that's changing and it's moving quickly, but it's still very much out there. So there are times when I feel like, my God, we're doing a terrible job with our marketing, um, and then other times I feel like, my God, nobody could be doing more than us, yeah. because, you know, given the challenges of the space that we're in, the um, the compensation or the only, you know, what we do have going for us, as I mentioned, is we're at least not competing with others, or at least currently. So we never, you know, almost never are we in discussions regarding pricing, for example. You know, that's never the issue. The issue is, you know, is the company ready to take on these people with their backgrounds? And um, because they need, they definitely need people and the jo- they have jobs that need to be filled. So that the need is there. The biggest you know, issue is selling them on that this makes good business sense for them.
0: Got it. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, one of the most interesting things about the company is that you've been able to raise uh, more than a million dollars of funding from some key investors like, you know, Founders Fund and Y Combinator. Um, In fact, what really impressed me is that even at, uh, at, uh, uh, you know, more than 30 years of experience, you've, you got into Y Combinator and you were accepted and you also managed to get funding from founders. How how did you manage to, you know, uh, look into Y Combinator as, as an, uh, you know, uh, as a part of, uh, you know, them grooming you and how was the experience uh, at Y Combinator?
1: Well, the experience at Y Combinator was amazing. It was great. And I urge any company, anywhere in the world, at any stage therein, to apply. Okay. Um, because um, they have um, done and helped me and my business so much. Um, when I launched my company, quite frankly, I knew very, very, very little about the fundraising process Okay. Um I had no idea how how you uh, work excuse me, let me turn that off. I had no idea how you work with um, professional investors like VC firms or even angel investors. I had no idea how around works, I had no idea about pricing, I had no idea about the different um securities you know, that you could employ to raise the money with, you know, and the laws that surround them. Um, I really didn't know what I was doing and it's complicated and confusing from the outside. Um, and it almost seems sort of like, you know, it's a work of art, but not science to understand it. But in fact there is a logic, there is a procedure and going through Y Combinator, definitely cleared up a lot of that mystery. Um, It also provided a huge amount of credibility, um, whereby there was, you know, a social credibility that, you know, if Y Combinator accepted you, then that therefore on, you know, on that, on that basis alone, you know, meant that you were credible and worthy of attention. Um Y Combinator receives, you know, thousands and thousands of applications. And you know, it's a very tiny percentage of companies that they uh accept. So the so the feeling generally is, is you know, these people know what they're doing, and if they've accepted you, that must mean you know you're you're you've got something going on. Um I f I often jokingly will say that going through Y Combinator, it made me feel like I was a made man in Silicon Valley. And I don't know if you know what that expression refers to, but it's, you know, if you get accepted into the mafia, you become a made man. You know, you're one of us and you're part of the club. And that was the same as it relates to being a tech startup. You became part of the club. So um, y Combinator um, is a three month um, program that occurs, uh, they do it online to some extent, they have the summer uh, classes that they're providing now and lots of companies are participating remotely, um, but the actual main program is, is, takes place in Mountain View, California, which is in Silicon Valley. And it ends by um, their demo day where every company, pretty much every company that goes through the program in that, that, you know, that batch, as they call them, um, presents their company in person to an audience of pretty much every important venture capital firm that's out there and those who aren't in attendance are watching it online. And it's a very valuable information, uh, invitation to a VC firm to come there. Um, they feel like they have to be there because companies like Airbnb and Reddit and Dropbox and Stripe and, you know, so many others have gone through the program. You know, they have 20 or 30 unicorn companies in their portfolio already. So, you know, if 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 you're an investor, you gotta be there. You can't miss out. And they create this level of excitement and demand, and it's all around. So you get that fear of missing out, that FOMO effect occurs. So that when I did my pitch, as I was getting off the stage after giving my three-minute demo day pitch, I already had people texting me on my phone. Telling me how much they wanted to commit to my raise, um, so that was pretty amazing, you know. And frankly, I became spoiled from that. I, I thought this is easy, and I'll never have trouble raising money again. Of course, over time, the excitement sort of you know wears out, and then there's a new batch of of companies coming in, and they're getting the attention and all the excitement. So you know, uh, but but. I, as I say, I encourage everybody to apply. You know, they uh, Y Combinator travels throughout the world to set up times to meet with founders. And, it, you know, some people think I'm too early uh, or I'm too late or whatever. And there's no two at all. They, they have taken all sorts of people. They had someone in my batch. These were high school kids who were like 15 years old who wow. co-called at the time, the president of Y Combinator, whose name was Sam Altman, yeah. and they got him on the phone and they pitched him on their company. And he, he you know, invited them to come to Mountain View to meet and they were accepted in the program while they were still in high school. Wow. So there's it's never too early, it's never too late. And, you know, they take all different types of companies they're looking for exceptional founders people who are bright who have a lively imagination people who you know want to learn from their marketplace and are not sort of you know don't have a huge ego that they know best you know they, they talk, I, I, I gained so much wisdom from them i can, i could go on and on and on you know people say is it worth it i would have paid them rather than them investing in me because
0: it was that worth it? No, absolutely. Y Combinator gives uh, a sort of credibility, uh, which which is which is like they're almost like the Harvard and Stanford of uh, of entrepreneurship. Um, right. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, you you also raising uh, using a crowdfunding platform like uh, Republic uh, to raise uh, you know funding. So why why go through uh, a crowdfunding platform? Uh, why not raise fund funds For from
1: Um, First of all, you know, money is money. And as a founder, the most important thing is to do the things you need to do to keep your company alive and to grow it. And so you do whatever it takes. You know, obviously, that's legal and moral. But anything that's out there that you can do, any opportunity that's out there to advance your company's future it's your obligation to do. And, you know, we'll end up raising a couple of hundred thousand dollars through this crowdfund at the valuation that we think is fair. And it did not require a great deal of work for us. So why not? So that's one reason. Um, The other reason is that you know, typically the investors that you that you get through a crowdfund are smaller investors. They're certainly not VC firms. VC firms don't invest in crowdfunding. They invest right. directly because they're writing, you know, large checks. But we have lots and lots of people who really believe in our mission and want to participate. And for them it's almost it's almost not an, an investment, it's more of a donation because they're more concerned about our mission. And that resonates with them. And they want to help and they believe that what we're doing is important work. And they want to participate. So through this current crowdfund, we have already something like 500 investors. Now, thank God, they all get grouped together and they appear on our cap table as one investor. But right. still it means that 500 smaller investors, people who maybe don't have a lot of money, they wanted to participate because it was important to them and they believe in it. And I am really, really appreciative of them and I'm moved by them. And I you know, want them to be involved and I want their support. It makes me and my team feel great that so many people have that kind of belief. And, um, you know, you never know where where that goes. We've had other large investors who have heard about us through the crowdfund. We've had other people who had connections who can help us in other ways that they know, for example, employers that could work with us or they knew politicians or whatever. You never know, but it gives you a platform. You know, it gives you exposure Right. And as long as it's not so much work, you know, as long as it's not taking away from the other things that we need to do, to me, it's a no brainer. And, you know, as long as you're working with a good reputable company, they have their investors who have gotten involved. So overall, you know, it's it's been a very good experience. And, cert- you know, is it easier to have three Big investors write big checks, of course, but there's something that you know for our very strong mission-based company that's very right about all this.
0: Correct. And uh, you know what? What? Uh, what is the money uh, to be used for when you raise the money from the Kryptonic platform?
1: Um, specifically, um, we will be building out our sales side, which okay. is which are people who will be calling the companies, you know, again, we have a two-sided marketplace. So on one side, we have job seekers and, and again, we have, we have more than 11 million of them. Um, and that, those come to us in large number and it doesn't cost us almost anything to acquire them. We need to have in a two-sided marketplace, you want to match up, you know, both sides, the supply and the demand. And it's always the, you know, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? That's the famous reference when you're dealing in a marketplace business. In our marketplace, not only do we have to make sure that we have the right number of supply and demand, you know, so that they balance each other out, but in our case, the jobs have, uh, uh, our marketplace is also very geographically specific. In other words, the jobs, we have to have the right number, and they have to be in the right location. It's no good if we have jobs somewhere, if we had a million jobs, you know, in Hawaii, and we only had, you know, 100 job seekers there, and most of them were in Michigan or New York or California, the jobs in Hawaii wouldn't be any good, there wouldn't be any help. So it's, it's tricky, you know, it's not the is a business certainly but that also is a barrier to entry. It creates a moat. It makes it harder for other competitors to come in if you've been able to figure it out.
0: Makes sense. Uh, so I you know, quickly want to do the top three. What's a favorite business book?
1: Sorry? My favorite business book? That's right. Uh, uh, boy, that's a tough question. I, I um, um, I, I can't. Um, um, some people are, you know, big, uh, um, you know, readers of business books. Um, I, I I don't know, uh, you know, that I would be one of them, quite frankly. Um, there's one book that I think is really great, and it's by Peter Thiel.
0: Um, zero to one. Sorry. Uh, zero to one.
1: Yes, exactly. And, right. and he talks very extensively about market marketplace businesses. Right. And um, he talks about, you know, how important it is in a marketplace business to figure out, you know, where you can operate in a, a relative my uh, monopoly in a, you know, and, and whereby you never have to compete on price. And, you know, the the best businesses are able to find that space. And I've always looked very, very closely at that and, you know, aspired to that. So I would say, you know, pretty much among all the business books I've ever read, that would be the best one.
0: Right. And, you know, if you could go back in time, when you uh, started working on uh, 70 million, uh, Uh, Jobs. What is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently?
1: That's a that's an interesting question. What would I have done? Well, you know something. I mean, I I, I, as someone who has had a life of lots of ups and downs. Someone, you know, I had. I used to be rich and famous, and then I was poor and in prison. (laughs) Um, you know, um, I certainly have a lot of events that I can look back upon and wonder would I have done them differently, but generally speak, and people always ask me, you know, what would you have done differently in your life in general? And, you know, my feeling is, is that anything you did right or wrong, um, is, has, has been Um, the reason why you are where you are today and that all that matters is here and now. And, and I believe in that. Um, I believe that, um, you know, mistakes that you made are often the things that you learn the most from and yet sometimes making mistakes are very painful. Um, so I, I don't, you know, I don't believe that there's much, um, to be gained by going over, you know, regret. Um, I do believe, you know, that the mistakes that I've made are the times where I failed to pursue something. You know, there's the old sports saying, you know, that, um, and how does it go, you know, it's the shots that you never take are the ones that you regret, not the shots that you miss. Um, You know, I I wish that we had gotten into the staffing business right away, rather than the job board business, because the staffing has really taken off and the job board not so much. But I learned a lot through that, you know, experience and that challenge. So, you know, I I, I don't look at, I don't spend my life spending a lot of time in regret um all i try to do is bring as much awareness to the to right now um i know you're supposed to be planning for the future but there's an old yiddish expression i believe um that goes something like man plans and god laughs right um you know if my life has shown me anything if i've gotten any wisdom is that i have no idea what the future will bring and it's never what I expect it to be. So, you know, what I believe is honest and true is that if I approach now with as much honesty and openness and transparency and love that I possibly, you know, can have, and and believe me, for me, that's a real challenge, but if I can do that, it seems that that's all that ever really matters.
0: Uh, that, that's uh, that's a great uh, advice. And uh, do you have any favorite online tools? Example: Gmail, Slack, uh, Zoom. Uh, any online tool which you which you prefer?
1: Um, we use Slack okay. uh, here. Um, I you know I am I am sixty five years old, nice. so you know most apps um, on the UI or UX are not designed for people like me. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, I once spoke at, at Google, which is also in California, um, to 200 of their product managers talking about user experience, and I yelled at them. I told them that so much of their UI is, and UX is so bad, you know, it's only good for very young people. But then I realized they know that. That, that's who they care about. Um, I don't have that many more years on this planet. So as a consumer, as a buyer, I have limited appeal. It's far more important that they build things that someone who's 15 or 20 years old, who's going to use their products for many, many, many decades to come, that's who they have to appeal to. So I get that. Sometimes it bothers me, but I do get it. Um, So I don't love anything particularly. I mean, you know what I love the most? I have a terrible sense of direction. I love Google Maps. I love Google Maps. Because I feel fearless now when I get in the car and decide to go somewhere. Otherwise, I would have to pull out a map and and plan every turn. And I, I just, I have the worst sense of direction. So Google Maps has saved my life.
0: Color will put that in the in the show notes. Uh, you know what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about uh, seventy million jobs?
1: Um, two ways. Um, I uh, my email, which I give out freely, is richard at seventy million jobs.com. The number seventy, and then the word million, and then the word jobs job dot com. Um, we are also running a campaign, as you mentioned, on Republic, a crowdfunding campaign. Right. And we would love the support of anybody who believes that people deserve a second chance and who believe that employment um, is really the silver bullet, the key to getting people to lead productive lives and to leave their past lives, past lives of committing crimes behind. So that's at republic.co, republic.co. And then on that page, you on that landing page, you'll find our specific page that you could click through to. So we'd love to have that support as well.
0: So you know, I'll, I'll also put that in the show notes. Uh, thank you, Richard, for for coming onto the show. I was really inspired by your journey, uh, and that how you're trying to solve this this big problem, and uh, you uh, you're full of life, and I, I love that. You know, you you're building something so amazing at this time. Thank you so much for coming onto the show.
1: And thank you so much for having me. The best part of my job is getting to talk to people who also have a big heart, and and you clearly do. So thank you for your help and continued success in everything you do.
0: Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.